Well, good morning again. Uh, if you are in Kidmo, I think you are hanging out with us today, which I'm thrilled for you. I don't know if you feel the same, but uh, I'm thrilled that you're here with me today. All right, I'm going to be talking with you today about parables again, and if you're here for the first time with us, we've been for the last few weeks talking about the secret teachings of Jesus. And uh, last week we had just the blessing of Chad and Leslie Seagraves being here from 1040 Connections, and just what a blessing they are always to me, I I know they were to you as well, uh, and what they're doing around the world, but not just that. Much of the blessing that we receive from them is, is not what they're doing, it's the way they see the world. <laughs> it's the way they view Christ in this world. And for that, I'm very thankful. So um, I'm sure we'll get another chance. They're, they're headed back to Thailand, and uh, I'm, we'll have another chance to hear from them again, and we'll also be able to partner with them over the coming years. But uh, in parables, what I want to talk to you about today, I, I feel a little uncertain and like I'm not really the right person to do this parable. To be honest, this is a parable that I have hated most of my Christian life. Uh, so when we dive into this, I just want to set you up with high expectations for what you're about to chew on over the next few minutes, right? But uh, in this parable, quite honestly, I believe uh, in the last 30 years of my life, I have been a follower of Jesus, and I firmly believe that he has continually been pushing for the last 30 years in the direction of what I want to share with you today, although I will not say I've reached it. Um, Paul, in some places where he taught, said, if you will just be like me, you'll be okay. I just want to be upfront with you that and to what I'm going to talk with you about today, don't be just like me, all right? I'm striving to be better than where I am. And you know, I know this is cryptic, but you'll, you will see this in just a few minutes. The reason we wanted to do a series on parables is because parables, I, I always grew up believing that Jesus wanted everybody to know his, his deepest meanings and deepest messages, and so he framed them in ways that people could grasp, no matter who they were or where they were from. They were these cute little stories in which it just made it easy to understand what Jesus was trying to say. Now, the reason I thought that is because if you grew up in church like I did, you grew up with, and a lot of your teaching were parables. You know, you didn't really want to talk to the kids about hacking off your arm if it causes you to sin. You know, I know we got kid mowing here today, but, you know, that's not really a good kid's lesson for them. And so we like to go with the stories that kids can get. And so we will bring in all of the teachings of Jesus that just feel like they're kid-friendly. And so a lot of times, that's why we grew up learning about parables, but only seeing the really the low-lying fruit of what Jesus was trying to say. Because the way Jesus described his parables to his own followers was to say this, the reason I teach in parables are so that the people are, who are listening and paying attention will get it, and no one else will. Now that's completely contrary to everything that I was trained on how to teach and how to be a pastor. Because if you go to seminary and you go and you learn how you're supposed to teach, you are supposed to spend lots of time taking the message and getting it to a point where anybody could understand it so easily and grasp it and take it out and go with it. But interestingly enough, that is not the way Jesus taught. But instead, Jesus taught in ways that if you were tracking with him, if you were following with what he was saying, you would get it. But if you were not, you would walk away and say, well, that was a cute story. I don't really get it. And so today's parable for years, that, that's how I took this parable. That's a great story. I don't really get it. I mean, I kind of get it, but I don't really get it. 
So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. If you have a phone, you version should be up. I got it up a little late today, so it sometimes takes some time for it to aggregate into their events. But I, I don't know if somebody can tell me if it's there or not. But it is there. Good. It's there. So you can follow along on YouVersion. Um, if you want, YouVersion is a great tool. And I just want to say again to our students that are some in the room and some in other places, I just want to say I'm so enjoying seeing um, your reading plan activity on YouVersion. Uh, so some of you have friended me, which makes me feel really good as a pastor that anyone under the age of 20 wants to be my friend. And I know it's just YouVersion. I know it's just you version, so I'm not taking it too seriously, but um, I'm really thrilled. But that benefit that I get is I get to see what you're reading. And some of you guys are in these group um, devotions where you're commenting and you're learning things and you're sharing with each other what you're learning. I just got to say, that is awesome. And if you don't have version on your phone, because I know you've got a phone, if you don't have version on your phone, then you need to put it on there. And there's a great place to, to read uh, through some uh, either topical-based studies, or you can just read through the Bible, which is what I spend a lot of time doing there. And, you know, I some, some of you guys, like Ken over here, Ken's, he's reading the Bible in 45 days. I just want you to know that, man, he's my hero, and I would love to be like him one day. Part of it is the beard. That somehow increases your intellectual ability tenfold, what I understand. At least people with beards tell me that. But um, I have a little beard, so I just a little bit. But uh, anyways, continue doing that. That is a great thing to do. Matthew chapter 20 is a parable we're going to do today. And as we enter into this, I want to ask you a question that I hope will permeate through our time together, and that is this. What in your life are you anxious about? What in your life are you, right now, anxious about? Are there areas in your life that you find great contentment, you are full, you are at peace, you find yourself whole and exactly where you need to be? And are there areas that you're not? In Matthew chapter 20, we're going to start there, but we've got to backtrack because you can't understand the parable unless you understand the context in which Jesus taught it. In Matthew chapter 20, let's just go through the parable together and then we'll back up so we understand what he's trying to say. Verse 1, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, and a denarius would have been a day's wage, that's what they were getting, a day's work for a day's wage. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same, and about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing and said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, The last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. 
I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Now, as we read this story, the, the mechanics of the story is not all that difficult to grasp. We've got a, a vineyard owner who needs people to pick grapes and to tend to the vineyard, and he goes out at different times of the day. He goes out at 6 in the morning, goes out, goes out at 9 in the morning, at noon. He goes all the way up until 5 in the afternoon, and quitting time is at 6 in the afternoon. Now, I don't know about you, but you've probably been in a job where you work with people that don't quite carry their load. Amen? Amen. All right. So you, you know where I'm going with this. You have probably at times even been expected to pick up the load of someone else when really it's their load. Amen? Okay. Some of you are dealing with this right now. I can tell. I can tell. Now, as we go through this story, this is a little bit of what we see happening here. We have a vineyard owner going out and supplying work for day laborers, and he negotiates with them in the beginning to say, if you'll come work for me for a day, I will give you a day's wages. The problem comes when those that are hired on the last hour of the day get exactly the same pay, but not only that, they get it first, while those that started at 6 in the morning have to wait in line, wait in the heat, they're tired and exhausted, been working for 12 hours, and they have to wait for these guys who came in and have only worked an hour and get the exact same pay, and they're not happy about it. In fact, they're probably thinking within their minds, well, if he's giving those guys that only worked an hour denarius, I bet he's going to give me more. That's like when you do extra at work and you think your paycheck's going to be bigger, but it's exactly what it was the week before. But I worked so hard this week. <laughs> and so they get frustrated, and the owner of the vineyard says, well, I agreed with you for a day's wage. Am I not giving you what I agree with you? Can I not do with this however I want? Now, I think the way that I read this, for many years of my Christian life, is very easy, and maybe some of you have read this too, and this is kind of our takeaway from the parable, just that, that surface level, don't really get what Jesus is saying, but this is what I'm going to take away, is this, if God asks you to do something, he will give you the same reward that he gives everyone else, period. It's very moving, isn't it? Very motivational, inspiring. You right now want to go conquer the world thinking, I'm going to do more work and I'm going to get the same pay. That's great. God is fair. He's going to give everybody the same. Wonderful message. But see, many people, that's the way they read parables. They read through the mechanics of the story. They get the mechanics of the story because the parables do have very much a tie-in to everyday life, even though we ourselves, probably most if not any of us, have ever been a day laborer where we wait and we stand out and for somebody to come by and hire us for the day. I, maybe you have. I've never done that. But we can get the mechanics of the story, and if we read all the parables in this way, okay, I got the story, and now I'm going to make the application of what he's trying to say. Interesting thing is, many times, even when Jesus spoke these things in front of the disciples, even the disciples did not understand what he was saying. And in fact, if we dig a little deeper, we'll find this parable was actually for the disciples. We just all get to benefit from them kind of 
getting told how the world works. So every time we look at one of these parables, when you only look at what happens on the surface, you may be missing what Jesus really wants to say. When we understand this in the context, we see another very well-known passage of Scripture immediately before this one, and it is the reason that Jesus told this parable, and I want us to back up and just go through this. I want you to know ahead of time, I have a lot of Scripture to share with you because what I, I believe what I'm going to share with you is just so talked about more than anything else in Scripture, and at the same time, we miss it so many times. But let's back up to Matthew chapter 19. The, the very last part of that chapter is the story of the rich young man. And I want you to listen specifically for how Peter responds to what's happening here. You think you know this story, but I want you to look at Peter's response as we read through this. Verse 16 of Matthew 19 says, Behold, a man came up to him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Well, which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have you don't remember that part do you we've left everything so what reward will we have jesus said to them truly i say to you in the new world when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will e inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Very next verse. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive much more. I'm sorry, I'm, back in, I'm going ahead. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for the vineyard. He's enunciating his point for Peter and what we find in Peter are two false beliefs, and I guarantee if you do not have these false beliefs right now, you have had them at some point. In reality, if I am very honest and open about my own life and my own faith, I would tell you I struggle with these false, two false beliefs on a daily basis. Now, I know in my mind, theologically, that these are false. In my heart, practicing this is very difficult. But as we look through what happens with Peter and this conversation about the rich young man or with this rich young man, what's interesting is 
that Jesus says, if you will give everything away, which is not a command that you are supposed to give everything away, although it is an invitation for something greater. It's interesting, a lot of times we read that, and people who love this verse are people that like have no money, right? I love this verse. I am so godly because I am broke. I mean, I am so broke. <laughs> And God loves me so much because of it. You know, there are a lot of people that literally take this passage and they take that away from it. That is totally not what it means. As you know, in fact, that the gospel would never have made it outside of Jerusalem if it wasn't for wealthy people. Who do you think paid the bills of the disciples because the disciples gave everything away because Jesus told them to, remember? Jesus instructed his disciples before he sent them out two by two, don't take anything with you, don't take any money, don't take any clothes, don't take anything, take what's on, the, on your back and then go and you're going to rely on other generous people to give you what you need. And in fact, as we go through and look at kind of the historical record around the time of Jesus, we find that some very powerful people supported Jesus and his ministry that had great wealth. So wealth is not the enemy, but it can be. And the reality is that in Paul's mentality of reward, it is equated with wealth. And what happens with Peter is he listens to this exchange and he says, huh. So they've got to give everything away and they're going to receive a reward that's a hundredfold. Hmm, I've given everything away. What do I get? I don't know if you've ever had this thought, but there are times that I think, you know, God, I've been doing pretty good lately. Do you ever do this? I did this as a kid, too. I just continued on into my adult years, just therefore confirming that I am still a big kid, Herman. I really haven't grown up yet. But I sometimes will say, God, I've done really well. I don't use those words because I know you're not supposed to, but I do think them. I'm doing really well. Could you just help out a little? Now, I don't know what kind of help out looks like for you, but I guarantee every one of you in this room have, in some variation, prayed that prayer. And that falls under the reality that we ourselves have a struggle with seeing the world and reward as Jesus described it versus as the world describes it. Here are the two beliefs of Peter. Number one that he's demonstrating here is, my relationship with God is based on my merit instead of God's grace. That's false belief number one. I have to act the part, be the role. I've got to do good enough in order for God to love me and to save me. And I have to prove my devotion to him by doing good things all the time. My relationship with God is based on merit instead of God's grace. The second one is my merit should determine the size of my reward. Now, we talk about this at the church in different ways. We like to talk about it, you know, gems in our crown, right? Yeah, my crown, I, you know, I'm destitute here in this world, but when I get to heaven, I'm going to be wealthy living in a mansion with a crown with all kinds of gems in it. Some of you grew up under that kind of teaching. If you'll just do all enough good things, you're storing up these rewards in heaven, and when you get to heaven, you're not going to be living in a little shack on the golden road. You're going to be living in a mansion in the hills. You know, that's where you're going to be. Another misunderstandings of scripture we tend to look at the level of heaven we're going to be in because scripture says there are different levels of heaven well god i have given you everything i mean we look at billy graham and certainly he's got to be at one of the top levels with the apostles look at all the people who've come to christ because of him 
And so many of us, in different ways, whatever it looks like for you, have determined that there's a reward based on what you have done for God, waiting for you or that you're experiencing now. It may not be, it may not be wealth. It may be your family. We will be the happiest family. I have friends on Facebook that I just cannot hardly re- watch their posts because I know they're not real. They, they just you know, portray the perfect family. I'm like, I know you. You don't have the perfect family. That's why I don't post anything about our family. I, don't want, I want to keep you guessing. I want you to wonder what's going on in our family, right? I don't post anything. For some of you, it's not your family, it's your career. Some of you are completely unhappy in your career, and you feel that if you would just do something right, that God would land you in the right place. Maybe it's a promotion. Maybe it's just a better check. Maybe you would beat out somebody else because somebody else has a position and is seen in higher authority than you, and you just want to beat them because you don't like them because they're a real jerk, right? We all have these things where we believe that if I do enough good stuff, then I'm going to get this great reward. And, and the point of this parable is not, well, it's just not about merit. The point is about the reward. What does the reward look like for you? What does the reward of knowing Christ, following Him faithfully, look like for you? I know when I was, uh, uh, before I became a Christian, I was younger. There was nothing about following Jesus to me that was a reward other than you get to go to heaven. And I remember like probably many um, other uh, teenagers and those who are younger, you know, had this mindset. I've shared this with you before that I've got a lot of fun stuff to do in my life that God's not really happy about. And so I'm going to get all that stuff taken care of. And then I will give my heart to him so I can get that reward. Because I really wasn't certain in that moment that there was any other reward other than going to heaven. And the reality is many, many people who call themselves Christians in our world today only believe the reward that's available to them is they avoid hell. Jesus never talked about the reward as just avoiding hell any more than a successful childhood is avoiding a punishment, right? This whole parable is about the reward and the one who gives it. And there have been many years of my life, many years as a pastor of my life, seeking a reward that is not the one that God ever offered nor wanted to give. You know, pastors, we are just so humble and only do the things of God. That's the only thing we think about. Literally, I have no other thought in my mind other than Scripture all the time. <laughs> even when I'm driving down the road, I, I really I don't even see cars. What I see are theological you know, constructs that I need to avoid to get to where I need to go spiritually in my faith and relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, that's how wonderful pastors are, right? We never have any other thoughts than that. But the truth is, is that many pastors struggle with this idea of what is the reward that God is going to give. Sometimes it's the number of people that come and sit in the seats, and I'm glad we've got lots of seats filled today. 
Sometimes it's the amount that comes in the offering or the size of the building and the number of programs that are created and we can compare our programs with other programs because many of our rewards and the way that we think of rewards are based not on what is a true reward for us but instead is based on a comparison of what we perceive is a reward for someone else. I see your reward and it looks better than mine. It's exactly what happened in the parable of the, of the laborers. They get the exact same pay and they work for one hour at the end of the day and I got the same pay and I worked all 12 hours? Many of us view rewards based on our comparison to other people and it's the way the world works. You're supposed to compare yourself with other people. Look at any marketing ad that you can find and ask yourself, who is this ad trying to tell me I'm supposed to be with their product? Clearly not who you are now, which is why you need to go get it. (laughs) And the reality is many of us are chasing a reward that Jesus never intended, but we have so spiritualized worldly definitions of success that we have somehow believed that what God really wants to give us is what the world wants to And yet, just like everything else that Jesus does, what Jesus is trying to teach is what I'm offering you the world doesn't even want. And that's why he spoke in secrets and in parables. That's why he spoke in these different stories and we couldn't quite figure out what's he trying to say. If we go back to the parable in verse 10, let's look at what happens again there at the end. When those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last, these last worked only one hour. You have made, me, made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. I think there are two primary things that we learn in this parable about God's grace. Because what we are experiencing here is a landowner who is being incredibly generous, and those who are receiving the generosity are not happy with how he expresses it. Another thing that we're going to see here is that the generosity with which God is giving you may not be the generosity that you're seeking, but it is the generosity that you need. Now, I know we don't like to talk about receiving what we need versus what we want because we have been taught and we conditioned in every area of our life that we ought to get what we deserve. We ought to get what we want. Needs, ah, we've moved so beyond our needs that we don't even want to think about just having our needs because life would just seem empty if we only had what we needed because there's so much more you can have. I mean, you can have a hose that literally shrinks down into the size of a quarter. And when you plug it in, it will expand to 50 feet with the water power to put out the wildfires in California. If only we would ship some of those out there, those fires would be history. It's amazing. And not only for 20 bucks can you get one, you can get two of them, and you can drive your Humvee over it, and the nozzle will not break. It's an amazing, amazing thing. 
But that deal's only if you call within the next 20 minutes. And there will be shipping handling charges equal to three times the cost of the product in order for you to get it. But when you have it, you will look at this incredibly expanding hose and think, my life is complete. (laughs) Do you have a hose that shrinks down to the size of a quarter? Of course you don't, but I do. (laughs) So compare yourself to me and come and just enter into the joy of my presence. I'll bring my hose. It'll be great. It'll be great. There's something within us that says our needs are not enough, but yet what Jesus says is your needs, see, when your needs are met, you don't want anything else. And the problem is because what we define as needs are not truly needs. Now, you know this. This isn't something you got out of bed to come here and talk about. You know that that's true, but let's look at what Jesus is trying to say, and let's take it a little deeper. We learn two things in this parable about God's grace. Number one, God is generous with his grace. Amen? He is generous. Now, I don't know what, how you view God's grace and his generosity, but for me, it means there are a whole lot of people that are going to know Jesus that I would have been okay had they not. Pastors don't say that, I know. But it's true. At times within our lives, we come to the place where we say that person is so bad, they should not get to go to heaven. And yet God is generous with those. When I was younger and I didn't have to experience a lot of pain and discomfort, I, I remember thinking, God, I just, I don't, I have a problem with deathbed confessionals. You know, like God's really concerned about what I think, but I really struggle with that. I mean, if they wait till they're going to die, how can you possibly believe that they truly love you? But I've had at least two people in my family that I care a great deal about that have had deathbed confessionals. It's become pretty important to me now. So when we look at the generosity of God, we have a tendency to want to dictate who he's going to be generous to and who he's not going to be generous to. But what we see is the radical generosity of him. Now, what's interesting is if we go back to this story, as we see the generosity of the landowner, and we have to understand that the parable is allegory. It's not meant to be a one-to-one ratio of earthly parable and heavenly concept. All constructs break down over time, right? You can't just say everything's perfect. In fact, one parable we'll get to it seems to actually cast God in a very different light than the rest of Scripture does. That's why we understand parables are allegories. They are stories. They are not you know, perfect representations. They are to communicate a point. But why did the landowner go out at 5 in the afternoon? Did everything have to get done that day? Maybe? Possibly? I don't think that was the point. My father-in-law, he... He's one of the handiest people I know, and he's retired. He could literally do whatever he wanted to do, but he chooses to live on a farm, grow hay, and do all kinds of things. And he used to call us up, and I don't know if any of you have ever brought hay in. Has anybody ever brought hay in? I mean, okay, so you know exactly what that's like, right? So it's like when the hay's got to come in, the hay's got to come in, right? It's got to happen, and there's a, a very small window that it has to happen. And so we get the call, I'm cutting hay, I got three days to get this hay in. Okay, we'll be there to bring the hay in. And it's not a fun process, I'll tell you that right now. But we would go up and we'd help, 
and we would bring the hay in. There are certainly times when you are on a time crunch and you have to get something done. I think we didn't do a very good job because he eventually went and bought enough you know, equipment. He could do his tractor and didn't need us at all, praise the Lord. But also, he didn't have to worry about us messing it up. So I think it was really his main motive. There are times in which a landowner will say, I've got a time period in which I've got to do this. But yet in Jewish custom, the idea of community was so huge that a landowner would go out at five o'clock, not because he needed more workers to finish the job, but because those people needed a day's wage so they could live. So the landowner didn't go out at five, like, oh, we do not have enough people. He went out because you need life and I'm here to give it to you. See, God's generosity, the grace in which he gives us, we never fully can comprehend how generous he is. When we begin to understand the generosity of God, then it begins to change the way we see the world and the way we see ourselves. And it is in that generosity that we begin to understand the reward that he's promising. The second thing we see in this story about God's grace is that God is sovereign and he can dispense his grace however he wishes, right? I mean, he's God. (laughs) He can do whatever he wants to do. And yet what he wants to do is to dispense it liberally to others, even when we ourselves are not real happy with how he dispenses it. It's a truth that it's hard for us sometimes to swallow. It's a truth for us many times. It's just difficult for us to admit. But our entire lives, our salvation is completely dependent on his grace and not on anything we have done. And yet we constantly want to go back to merit. Now, the days that we do really well, we want to be rewarded on our merit. The days that we don't do really well, we want to be forgiven in spite of our merit. And yet God generously gives to us. Now, I don't want you to forget the questions that, I've been, that I asked you in the beginning, and that is, what are you anxious about? Because that's where this is headed. What are you in need of? that you don't have and you're certain that you can't survive without it. What is that? It's amazing in our world today, anxiety is a crippling disease affecting more people every single day. We are anxious about all kinds of things. We get upset, uptight, we're worried, we just think. The reality is most of the outlets that we tune into are pushing our anxieties Because a lot of them are marketing cures for anxieties that we really didn't even know we had. I really didn't know I needed something for toe fungus. But apparently it's a thing, and now I'm worried about it. My my toenails are looking a little more yellow. Do I have toe fungus? I don't think I have toe fungus if any of you are grossed out right now. But the point is, is you are surrounded (laughs) by people that can make a buck off your anxiety, and so they push your anxiety on you all the time. What are you anxious about? What are you worried about? What are you afraid of? What's not going to work out? Some of you guys that are about to graduate, you're struggling with what's my job going to be? Am I going to get the right career? Am I going to be happy in what I'm doing? Am I going to make enough money? Is my job going to be around long term? Or, you know, what should I do? Can I afford college or should I skip college and go do something else? There's all kinds of anxieties around that where You have an incredible ability to make an income and to do something you love and you can go for it and experience things and try things and it's the joy of experiencing life in so many different contexts. And yet we're scared to death that we'll make the wrong choice or that the one thing will not be right. Everything we have depends on God's grace. 
When we look at success, we have vastly different definitions on what the world sees and what God sees. What, if we were just to say, and just be honest and open, and maybe you can just say, hey, I'm this is somebody else, not me, so you can appear more spiritual, but what are some of the world's definitions of success? Just throw them out. What are they? What, what makes you successful in the world today? Money? What else? Fame? What else? Those are the easy ones. Popularity? Nice car? Owning a house? A good house. A big house, right? What else? Power? Looking good. Yes, looking good. That's what I'm worried about at this stage of my life. I'm looking good. You know, you can't, I'm sure you could tell when you walked in the room. I'm spending a lot of time on that. A lot of time on that. The world has all kinds of different, 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 different definitions of what it means to be successful, but all of them mean you have more or are better than someone else. The problem is, is that we never, ever reach that point. Even the super wealthy struggle with feeling like they've done enough, they're good enough, they're successful enough. And so I just, I, I looked, I just was looking through some articles, and I, I just Googled. I just thought, hmm, what if I could find stories of wealthy people who are miserable? Because if you ask most people, the indication of success is wealth, and you will be surprised how many articles come up. And I don't mean like, you know, Joe's blog, who, you know, he's, he's never made a buck in his life, and he's talking about how miserable he's... I'm talking the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post. I'm talking about well-known ink Magazine Inc., I'm talking about well-known business uh, newspapers, Forbes, writing articles about how miserable wealthy people are. Just Google it. You don't have to take my word for it. Google it. You'll bring them up too. But I landed on an article that I know most of you have already seen. It was in a 2008 um, edition of, the, of Super Yacht Magazine, which I know you all have, right? All of you have got this. I've got it. I read it religiously. Um, Super Yacht Magazine. It's the magazine for the super rich. And uh, interestingly, what I fa- how I found this article was not really from the article. I found it from the Wall Street Journal. It referenced this article in the Atlantic that was talking about something that, that uh, a study that had been done by the Gates Foundation, by Bill Gates, who at one time was the richest man in the world, doing a study on the happiness and contentment of the super wealthy. And so they did a study and they had a couple of hundred people that earned at a minimum or, or had a self-worth of $25 million or more. And the average person who responded to the survey had a net worth of $75 million. Two of them were billionaires that responded to the survey. Overwhelmingly, they got the same responses. So I'm just going to read some of this article to you. Uh, and those of you who are super wealthy that have a super yacht, come talk to me after. I'd like to meet with you and talk with you about some vacation plans. But other than that, um, those of you who are, do not have a super yacht, you can just enjoy what I'm about to share with you, but at the same time recognize you are just like them. All right? So don't take it too far. This is October 2008 issue of Super Yacht. Money Cannot Buy Happiness is the name of the article. Page 38 of the International Magazine for Super Yacht of Distinction. Man, that's, I don't know who thought that up. That's a great title. If you have to ask what it takes for a yacht to qualify as super, you can't afford to be in the showroom. 
presented the Martha Ann, a 230-foot, $125 million boat boasting a crew of 20, a master bedroom the size of my house, and an interior gaudy enough to make Sodom Hussein blush. Well, not anymore. The feature story on the Martha Ann was published just as the S&P 500 suffered its worst week since 1933. This is 2008. Everything's crashing. Shedding $1.4 trillion over the course of the week, or about 2,240 Martha Ann's every day. Still, one of the captions accompanying the lavish photos betrayed the status anxiety that affects even the highest echelons of wealth. Quote, from these lofty heights, the caption promised, guests will be able to look down on virtually any other yacht. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Virtually any other yacht. One imagines the prospective owner wincing at this declaimer, pained by the knowledge that the world would still contain super yachts more super than his own, then at least one gazillionaire in St. Tropez Harbor would likely be able to peer over the gunwales and down at the Martha Ann. The lesson that mammon is a false or inadequate god goes back a long way, and a glossy spread in superyacht world is just one piece to relearn it. This is not a Christian magazine. This is the Atlantic, by the way. Another is Boston's College's Center on Wealth and Philanthropy, which since 1970 has minted a diverse array of studies of the wealthy. For four years, the Gates Foundation has supported an effort by the center to determine exactly how the American wealthy think and live, and in particular, how, when, and to what degree they make the shift from accumulating fortunes to giving them away philanthropically. The project has produced one of the most remarkable documents in the center's history, a survey that invited the very rich to write freely about how prosperity has shaped their lives and anything from a few words to a few pages, volunteering not only their net worth and sources of wealth, but also their innermost hopes, fears, and anxieties, which if you're not among the super wealthy, you think they don't have any anxieties because most of us believe that if we have enough wealth, we won't worry about anything. The responses which run to 500 pages and fill three plastic binders on the fifth floor of Boston College's McGuinn Hall constitute what the center's director, the sociologist Paul G. Shervish, calls an extraordinary sample of confession, memoir, and apologia from the super-rich. Roughly 165 households responded, 120 of which have at least $25 million in assets. The respondents' average net worth is $78 million, and two report being billionaires. The goal, say the survey's architects, was to weed out all but those at or approaching complete financial security. Most of the survey's respondents are wealthy enough to ensure that in the catastrophe, that in any catastrophe short of Armageddon, they will still be dining on uh, Chateaubriand, while the rest of us are spit-roasting rats over trash can fires. That's an enjoyable thought. The results of the study are not yet public, but the Atlantic has granted, was granted access to portions of the research, providing the anonymity of the subjects was strictly maintained. The center expects to present the full conclusions at an upcoming conference. I didn't get those. And the study is titled, The Joys and Dilemmas of Wealth. But given that the joys tend to be self-evident, it focused primarily on the dilemmas. The respondents turned out to be a generally dissatisfied lot whose money has contributed to deep anxieties involving love, work, and family. Probably your anxieties fall in one of those three categories too. 
Indeed, they are frequently dissatisfied, even with their sizable fortunes. Most of them still do not consider themselves financially secure. For that, they say, they would require, on average, one quarter more wealth than they currently possess. One respondent, the heir of an enormous fortune, says that what matters most to him is his Christianity, and that his greatest aspiration is to love the Lord, my family, and my friends. He also reports that he wouldn't feel financially secure until he had $1 billion in the bank. (laughs) Okay. Such complaints sound on their face preposterous. But just as the human body didn't evolve to deal well with today's easy access to abundant fat and sugars and will crave an extra cheeseburger when it shouldn't, the human mind apparently didn't evolve to deal with excess money and will desire more long after wealth has become a burden rather than a comfort. A vast body of psychological evidence shows that the pleasures of consumption wear off through time and depend heavily on one's frame of reference. Most of us, for instance, occasionally spoil ourselves with outbursts of deliberate and perhaps excessive consumption. A fancy spa treatment, dinner at an expensive restaurant, a shopping spree. In the case of the very wealthy, such forms of consumption can become so commonplace as to lose all psychological benefit. Constant luxury is, in a sense, no luxury at all. In other words, that last thing that you went and bought and were like, I got it, I saved for it, I got it. They just buy it and they're like, I don't care. I don't care, it doesn't mean anything. It's not special. I have so much other stuff. Taken together, this is where I want to end this, taken together, the survey respondents make a compelling case that being fantastically wealthy, especially when the wealth is inherited rather than earned, is not a great deal more fulfilling than being merely prosperous. Among other woes, the survey respondents report feeling that they have lost the right to complain about anything for fear of sounding or being ungrateful. Listen to this. I said that and now I lost my place. Here we go. Those with children worry that their children will become trust fund brats if their inheritances are too large or will be resentful if those inheritances or parts of them are instead bequeathed to charity. In other words, they're, not gonna, they're gonna turn out terrible if we give them too much and they're gonna hate us if we don't give them enough. That's what they worry about leaving to their kids. I keep losing my spot here. It's a long article. I'm about done with it. It's, uh, the respondents also confide that they feel their outside relationships have been altered by and have in some cases become contingent on their wealth. Very few people know the level of my wealth. And if they did, in most cases, I, this is a quote, I believe it would change our relationship, writes one respondent. Another notes, I start to wonder how many people we know would cut us off if they didn't think they could get something from us. Robert A. Kinney, who was trained as a psychologist and is one of the survey's architects, says the extreme wealth can take away some of the basic joys of living. For instance, that some wealthy people don't look forward to the holidays because they are always expected to give really good presents, in quotes. When you're a millionaire, Kinney says, expensive gifts merely meet expectations. That was a pretty good presence, the recipients might respond, but last year you gave me a car. Other people glorify wealth and think that it means that the wealthy are smarter, wiser, more blessed, or some other such crock, explains one survey respondent. I feel extremely lucky, but it's hard to get other non-wealthy people to believe it's not more significant than that. 
the novelty of money has worn off. So for many of us, I wonder how much of us believe that reward is still wrapped up in some way of living life in this world. You may view wealth differently. It may be monetarily. You may view wealth based on relationships. You may view wealth based on stuff that you earn. You may view wealth based on how other people view you. They may think well of you. Who knows? You may view wealth in a number of different ways, but for most of us, we are driven by the sense that we need more. And I really think there are few things as nefarious in this world as the need for more. Because it is never satisfied. So when we go back to this parable, one of the things that we see is that everyone is receiving generosity from the landowner to be able to live their life with what they need. And yet in their minds is always the sense of more. Even Peter in the back of his mind is thinking, I'm giving all this stuff away. I'm giving everything I have for you. What's in it for me? Jesus is saying, the reward I want to give you is so much more than what you're asking for. But you don't even see it. So that thing that I believe God's been telling me for years... One of the greatest earthly benefits of the gospel, because I do not in any way deny the beauty of the reward of heaven, is true and full contentment in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you something. Are you content? I mean perfectly content with your life. Now, I don't mean that you don't have some bad habits that you need to deal with, but I mean, are you content, whole, full? Life is good. I'm happy. I could exist like this forever. Or are you constantly in your mind saying, but I need something else. I need something more. I need what they have because they look so happy. I got to tell you, I I shared with you our trip. We went up to see my aunt in California and oh my goodness, I felt so discontent (laughs) because wow, it was so beautiful. Everybody was relaxed. Not in L.A. Don't go to L.A. It's a terrible place. But everywhere else we went, I mean, everybody's relaxed and everybody's just, I mean, beautiful sun and it feels great. I mean, there are wildfires everywhere right now, so that's not great. But, you know, the homes were beautiful, big houses that were like all windows on these huge hills overlooking the ocean. Oh, my gosh, God. I could minister some people out here in one of those. <laughs> Journey Church Malibu. Let's, let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. We want to plant churches in places that need to hear the gospel. Malibu sounds like a good place. And the, re- the reality is that what Jesus has been offering us, not just in his time walking this earth, but in all of Scripture, is pointing that the reward God is wanting to give us is full contentment in him without the need of anything else, even the worry of food and clothes. Are you fully content with your life right now? What is that voice within you telling you, my life is not good enough, I don't have enough, I need more, 
I'm just gonna I'm gonna real quickly read a bunch of scriptures to you. They're short, but I want to read a whole bunch throughout the New and the Old Testament. And I want you to see the common theme of what God is offering you if you know him and if you follow him. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 37:4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart, which quite Interestingly, the desires of our heart, if we're delighting in the Lord, is what? The Lord, right? I'm delighting in Him. That's my desire. So my desire is in Him. So delight in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's the invitation to follow him. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fall. We jump into the New Testament, Matthew 6. Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 7, 7. Again, Jesus says, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Mark four eighteen. Others, this is the, the, uh, the parable of the seed going among the three uh, types of soil, going on the good soil, on the, the soil surrounded with thorns, and then on the rocky soil. And this is what it says about that thrown among the thorns. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, which is all, everything else, enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. John 4, verse 13 says, Jesus said to her, this is the, the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well in which he comes and says, I'm hungry. And so she dips and gives him water. And he says, I will give you water that you will never thirst again. I will give you living water. John 4, 13 says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, listen, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, the thirst is the desire for more. If I had a better job, if I had more money, if my kids acted better, if I had a better wife or a better husband or I had better parents or I had a better upbringing or went to a better college or I had a better understanding of careers in this world. That thirsting, you know what it feels like to thirst and to not be quenched. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm here to quench your every thirst. But if you want all these other things in addition to me, you can never have what I'm offering you. 
And so in this parable, this upside-down teaching, this secret teaching is literally going to the core heart of what we desire in our lives and in the world, that if we have to have everything else, we will miss the thing that we most want, and that is full contentment in Christ. What does it look like to be content in Him? Does it look like we come to church and, and we still get all this stuff? Does it mean that I tithe and then whenever I put my 10% in, God's going to have a check in my mailbox for 110%? Because I've heard that. I don't know how many times I've heard that from people. If you'll just give faithfully, God will return what you've given. God's already given us everything that we don't even worry about what we're giving away. It's an amazing thing to be totally content in this world. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit can only be found in Him. Philippians 4, 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Paul talking to the church in Philippi. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Just some background, real quick background. Paul's a missionary. He relies on other churches supporting him. They had supported him, and they stopped, and then they started again, and were sending a good friend to, to deliver some much-needed things for him. But this is what he goes on to say. Verse 11, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. What? <laughs> the great treasure is contentment. <laughs> I have I found what it means to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to be know how to abound in any and every circumstance i have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need i can do all things through him who strengthens me which is so crazy because we all the time take that verse and we take it that god's going to help me be wealthy i'm going to get stuff i can do all things through him who strengthens me which means i can get that better job i can get that better house i can get that better check i can accumulate the wealth other people will look at me with envy i can do all things through christ and what Paul is literally saying is, I don't need to do anything. I'm content. And I find myself as I look in the mirror and I go, oh, wow, am I content? Are you content? Think of any of the parable sermons I've worked on. This one is the most self, uh, I don't know what the right word is, critical. Um, I mean, I'm convicted by this myself and my contentment. I have a whole list. Maybe my list is different than yours. I have a whole list of what it would take for me to finally be content. Well, Paul is saying, I already have it. It's Jesus. I don't need anything else. I have the thing. I don't have to have wealth. I don't have to have health. I don't have to have a perfect family. I don't have to have a perfect job. I don't have to have anybody looking at me and going, man, I want his life. Even though if they knew what I had, they would want this life. Because it's so full and whole and perfect. First Timothy 6 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires. Harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, which is what we are seeing in the world today. 
I'm pulled to these, all these other things. And Jesus is saying, I want to fill you and make you whole so that you don't have to worry about anything because you have me no matter what happens in this world, no matter what happens in your job, no matter how long you live on this place, no matter how your life ends, you were with me, I am with you. You have all things through me and then you are going to be with me in heaven for eternal life. You've got everything. You have hit the lottery and yet within us the world and the enemy is telling us, yeah, but it's not enough. Just a little more. Just a little more. James 1.17, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shadow due to change, or shadow due to change. Hebrews 13, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The point is not, this is a commandment for you to go and be content. Because you know how well that works? Telling a four-year-old you can't have ice cream. You know, that's how it works, right? Because that's what we're living right now in our life. You can't have ice cream. Ah! You know? Now you go be content, okay? You hear me? Get out of here and go be content. What? doesn't work that way does it he's not saying now you go do this even if you don't feel it what he's saying is i am going to absolutely fill you so that you are content i'm not telling you go be content i'm telling you the reward that that hundredfold reward that he said if the rich young man would just go and sell everything he would give him so much more what he was offering him was contentment something that his wealth would never bring him are you content There are times that the world seems more valuable than Christ. That's the constant message you get every day. Yeah, Jesus is good and all, but not as good as that. Also, the point of the gospel is literally this, complete and perfect contentment in Christ. That is what we're here for. We have come to be content in Christ. He is our everything. He is the great prize. He is the great treasure. He is the pearl of great price. He is the field that contained the treasure that you should go sell everything you have so you can just have that treasure. He is it. He is the reward. Being able to walk with him and know him is it. There's nothing better. There's nothing else. That's why when we share the gospel, we say one day you get to go to heaven is the worst gospel you can share. Whereas the kingdom of heaven is here now and you can have this right now. This contentment can start now and it can last forever. Now, some of you are saying, is it possible to ever be content? I'm asking you the same question. I'm asking the same question to myself. Can you ever be content? Have you ever thought that sanctification was not just about doing better for God, but instead sanctification was the process of becoming more content in him as we see that he is better than everything else? Sanctification is a process of becoming more wholly content in Christ. As we do that, we become more like him. It's an amazing process. It's an amazing thing. I believe that this is the journey of following Jesus. This is what it looks like to seek him and to follow him. When we read scripture, it's just like, you know, I can't tell you to be content. I can't tell you to just go out and read your Bible. I mean, I can. But if you go read your Bible because I've guilt-tripped you into it, then you're going to read it and go, oh, Mark's not mad at me. 
And i got to tell you something. I don't read Scripture because I think that somebody's going to be mad at me. I read Scripture because I believe God wants to say something to me. And on the timeline or on the scale of Mark will not think bad of me because I've read my Scripture and God has something to say to me, I'm going to tell you something. God has something to say to me, wins out. It's way better than worrying about has Mark guilt tripped me into this. When you guys are reading Scripture, whether it's you version or anything else, do you go to Scripture thinking, God has something to say to me about my life right now? When you pray, do you pray because you're supposed to? Or is it an SOS every now and again? Or do you believe, i got to talk to the, the one that gives my life purpose and contentment. I need to talk to Jesus. There's a, very, there's a great difference. There's a great difference. It means that we trust in his plan because even if his plan means we lose our job, we lose our house, we lose our health, we may even lose our life, it's okay. Because you know what? He's given me so much more just in knowing him. Let me ask you this. Where is your contentment found? Do you even know? Is it the perfect house, the perfect family? Is it constructing a life with no worry, no anxiety? What does it look like for you? Where is your contentment found? God's grace is sufficient for you. That's what I want to leave you with. God's grace is sufficient. It's greater than anything you could have. And I don't mean sufficient like, I mean, you've got to settle for it, but I mean, it's pretty good too. I mean, like there's nothing that compares to it. Every day of our lives, we're going to struggle until Christ returns with this problem with anxiety and, dis- and discouragement and despair. We're going to struggle because we are struggling with sin in a world that is imperfect. We are going to struggle with this. This is going to be the way it is until we're in heaven. And that is one of the things we look forward to in heaven is that part will be gone. But along the way, we seek out for him to be our everything, to reframe the way that I see something. I should show you a TED Talk Deidre sent to me. It was a while back. We've talked about it so many times since then. And I'll, I'll try to look it up and send a link out on Facebook today. But the, the whole talk is about, uh, the, whole, the whole talk is titled, Good or Bad, Hard to, hard to Tell. And it's a great presentation of saying when bad things happen, that doesn't mean it was really bad. And when good things happen, it doesn't mean it was really good. I'll send it out so you can see it. When we begin to see Jesus as our full contentment, we change the way we see good and bad things, though. When things fall apart, we don't fall apart. We say, oh, God's doing something. When things come together, we don't go, oh, man, I am really, I'm on fire. We say, oh, God's doing something. And we look at where God's at work and we join him, just like what Chad and Leslie talked about last week. This is what I want to leave you with. There's so much more I want to say to you about this. We may have to continue this another day, but... Where is your contentment found? Are you waiting for somebody to make you content? Are you waiting for your boss or that coworker that you just wish they would quit? To actually quit and then you'd be content? <laughs> Are you waiting for your spouse to finally figure you out? What is it? Is it that is it that car? Is it that I just get so much money in the bank? Or maybe it's just if I just get out of debt? Where's your contentment? Because I'm going to tell you, once you get there, you won't be content. It won't happen. Because once you get there, there'll be something else you want. God is offering full contentment in Him. He is the great prize, and He is the great treasure. 
All right, I've got more I wanted to say to you, but I'm going to close for today. I think you're probably at the limit of what you can take, but I do want you to consider this and think about this this week. Don't leave here and go to lunch and go, ah, oh, that was good. Now get on our day. I want you to consider this. Wrestle with this like I do. I want you to get into Scripture. You can follow this on version. You can go back and look at this later. Whatever. I want you to deal with this because this is what he is offering. This is what the church is supposed to be about. You and I, we have found the greatest treasure and we want to spend time together and celebrate the great treasure we found. I mean, it's awesome. It's like a bunch of lottery winners getting together and having a support group just to pat each other on the back and say, isn't this awesome? That's what the church is. And along the way, when people see that in us, they go, oh, how do you have that? I don't have that. I know, it's crazy, isn't it? All the things you're trying to do to get it, it doesn't work. Oh, I knew that, but I'm still trying. Jesus is everything. What? Well, let me tell you about it. That's what the church is. Let us pursue together full contentment in him. Would you pray with me, Father? God, I thank you for your love and your grace, the generosity in which you give us so incredibly. Uh, Father, I pray for those in the room that they are full of anxiety. They are struggling right now feeling that we just this all makes sense but yet what they're going through is so much worse and so much more difficult father i pray that you would let them to see how great the gift of your joy is for them i pray that you would help them to see how much you love them and that you are the greatest prize in their life that they don't have to worry about all these other things you have it covered we have you you are with us we have the holy spirit living within us we will be with you forever father let our contentment be in you and not in searching for other things pray that you would quiet the thirst you would diminish the cravings and that we would see how beautiful you really are we ask all this in jesus name amen